My name's Helen Keane and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Adventures in Space and Tim, a podcast inspired by space generally and Tim Peake's mission to the International Space Station in particular. In this episode... Over toasting. Over, over pyrolyzing your bread, yes. is the technical term. <laughs> While recent studies about the health dangers of burning your toast may have been exaggerated somewhat, fire breaking out in space is a huge and serious danger. I talked to Dr Rory Haddon, who you heard just there, and Ulysses Rojas, about their work with NASA and the International Space Station on this problem, which we must deal with as we plan longer and more complex human space flights. But first, the number one box office smash film, Hidden Figures, based on the true story of three NASA scientists who blazed a trail in the organisation for people of colour and women, is on general release in cinemas right now. If you haven't already seen it, go! I spoke to the Oscar-nominated screenwriter Alison Schroeder about her favourite scenes in the movie, what it was like to mix space fact and fiction, and the huge impact the film is having, particularly on younger audience members. She also discusses her feelings of optimism for the future of STEM and for Hollywood. I started by asking her what it was like writing the screenplay at the same time the author Margot Lee Shetterly was writing the book. I mean, it was... Margo's incredible, and I think we had a really wonderful time working together, but it was a bit daunting at first, because when I was hired, I, I didn't know that there, there wasn't the book yet, so um, I was like, okay, this is going to be fine. Luckily, the book proposal was um, very detailed in, in that we knew it was Mary Jackson, Dorothy Vaughn, and Catherine Johnson's story, yeah. and then Margo was really gracious and sort of gave me all of her research, which was quite massive. It was everything from housing surveys on their suburban development to Jim Crow laws to interviews that these women had done. And then I did my own research as well, you know, into the math and the engineering that was required for these mercury missions. So it was just, we started with a lot of research and a lot of talking back and forth and a lot of questions. And then sort of once I had that foundation, I sort of climbed into a hole, also known as my pajamas and my sofa, and uh, (laughs) went off for 12 weeks and wrote. And, uh, and then came back with the first draft of the script. And how optimistic does she feel about the future, both for STEM and for Hollywood? Well, I definitely feel optimistic in the terms of STEM. I mean, places like Google, for instance, have been just very invested in this film because in the next 10 years, they're not going to have enough people in the workforce that, that are trained in STEM unless women and minorities start right. going into expectations. Yeah, so they are they are all for it. And I, I recently went to, to down to Google X for the Dream of Self Driving Car, which is headed by a woman, and um, you know talked to them. And so I, I do think STEM is. I think these companies in the Silicon Valley, especially, are very much looking um, to hire more diversity uh, and, and welcome it and crave it. So I do think it's going to change. And um, just watching the impact that this has had on young girls in school. Um, I hope makes change. For instance, when you know these different CSI crime shows started showing the forensic analyst as a woman, there was a huge uptick in women going into those fields in university. So I hope that this does the same. As far as Hollywood goes, oh, I do think that I do think it's changing. 
I think that there's also still the, some of the old sexism and the energy varies from meeting to meeting and producer to producer, you know, what you run into. Um, but I do, I do think it'll change. It just, you have to stick with it. I find mm-hmm. that, you know, women's careers often take a lot longer than the men's careers in Hollywood. So you have to just be willing to not go anywhere and <laughs> keep showing up no matter how many times they tell you no. <laughs> Tim Peake's mission to the ISS involved huge engagement with the younger generation. School children across the UK were inspired by him. And Alison feels it's often this younger generation who are underserved by the entertainment industry. I, I'm not sure we're thinking enough about the younger, younger generation when we write these movies because they don't just, it's not just animated movies that, that parents want to take their kids to. And here was a movie that sort of, you know, broke a lot of the rules and I mean, five and six and seven-year-olds are going to this and understanding the messages. You know, I heard about um, a first grader that they were sending the civil rights, this little boy stood up and said, I will explain segregation to the class. And then it proceeded to describe every scene in his figures. And I just thought, that's incredible. And it definitely inspired me to think about my writing yeah, differently in the future. And what about NASA today? They wanted to to let everyone know that they could be part of the space program. And certainly this film shows that, you know, anyone who was good at their job, you know, ultimately was, was hopefully valued. I mean, I guess not everyone, but these women were. Mm-hmm. And that it was it was about the common goal and, and they had a mission. And if you could help with that mission, you were on the team, you know. And in real life, these women's bosses were very inclusive and, and really respected them and, and, and valued them greatly. And I'm not sure we see that a lot, mm. you know, um, certainly in a period piece. And so something to celebrate and maybe be um, a reminder to others and an inspiration to others to, to do the same in their workplaces. And I think that's also an important thing with the film. It's like, yes, they, they had these great achievements, but it's not like the struggle ended, you know, mm. ongoing and, really worked for future generations and Christine Darden for instance is the next generation and did some incredible work um, and you know Mary Jackson was instrumental in, in sort of pushing these people women up the ladder and saying mm. okay being overlooked for promotions and here's what you need to do so you're not overlooked anymore um, and that's really important too women helping women was a huge message of this film. Mm, that was one of the many things that was so great about it, the way you had the three leads and, and the relationship between them. And I was like, why are we not showing this? This is this is what it actually looks like. So let's, I don't need a cat fight. I don't need, you know, I, I wanted to see them really coming together, but also just teasing each other and being human and, you know, the potluck scene where they're giving poor Catherine Johnson a hard time. <laughs> You know, that's, that's how it is with my friends, and I think it is with a lot of women, um, the way we interact. So it was, it was a real pleasure to get to write that. The film does feature other real NASA characters in the background, such as James Webb, but also has fictional characters like Paul Stafford, played by Big Bang Theory's Jim Parsons. I asked Alison what it was like to mix fact and fiction. Well, there was there were a lot of... Um, there were actually many people that sort of ran the space task group. And then um, Catherine had two bosses herself. And so that's just too messy, as you sort of say, mm-hmm. for a film. So we needed to just make sort of one figurehead for the space task group for her to sort of that symbolize all of these, these men she worked with. And so that was Al Harrison and, and both the director and I and co-writer Ted Melfi. We took from a lot of different, you know, real people that had worked at NASA to create this character. 
um, who was really more about being oblivious, right? He wasn't an outright racist or anything. He was just mm-hmm. sort of oblivious, and he was all about the mission. No matter who you were, it was always just about the mission, and he sort of makes it clear in the beginning he doesn't, you know, personally apologize to anyone, and then he changes because Catherine is so extraordinary, and, and her personality is sort of, sort of extraordinary that he, he changes and, and wakes up a bit. So he just sort of, he sort of, he was the symbol for both all of her bosses and sort of the, uh, the supervisors that were in charge that changed their ways once they got to know these women and, and broke down the racial, racial and sexist barriers that were in place at NASA. Um, and then there were, there was, you know, early drafts where I was speaking so close to the truth that it wasn't quite flowing. And um, I had, you know, there was a point where the producer said, okay, you've got the math, you've got the science, now just go have fun. And that's mm-hmm. where I could be like, oh, right, these women were mothers and, and, and friends and, and wives and Girl Scout leaders and good cooks <laughs> and dancers. And, and that's all part of their identity. So, um, but that was a lot about, it, you know, how do you sort of symbolize what's happening in a movie and, and, and narrow things down. And, um, you know, the, the bathroom moments, you know, were yeah. sometimes a little bit small, smaller in real life, but you need that moment as, you know, the, the conversation with Catherine and her boss about the bathroom probably took place in his office, right? Uh, probably with her dripping wet in the middle <laughs> of the, the room, but you need to show that, she and many like her stood up for themselves and they they voiced their concerns and then it shifted many people. Um, and so those are the choices sort of as a, as a writer that you have to choose what to, what to sort of fictionalize a bit. A fantastic scene, I thought, because, yeah, it really... Yeah, I mean, it's one of my, you know, I think, it, it, you know, when I read about their dress code, it was actually Mary Jackson that had to sort of run so far to the bathroom. I was just sort of horrified and said, we have to include this and then the segregated signs were actually taken down you know the boss wrote a memo but you know no matter how hard he typed that memo it's not quite as cinematic as a hammer to a sign no precisely that's you know that's the the choices you make and what about her favorite scenes this led us to talking about the challenges for the actors in portraying the segregation of the times for each of them, I just, I wanted to build to, like, their moment of, like, big moment of victory. So for Catherine, it was, like, the running of those numbers and her racing with the answer. You know, that was just so, so great. And, and the scene where she stands up at the Pentagon and shows meeting and shows them all up. For, for yeah. Mary, it was the courtroom scene. And, and for Dorothy, it was, you know, her figuring out that programming machine. So, but then, you know, when you see it on the screen, um, I think that for me it was a lot of the nonverbal moments, you know, watching those women march uh, to the programming room was just so in- incredibly power and such a testament to the amazing cast and crew, you know, the costumes, the production design, the directing, the cinematography, that you see those moments and you just, you know, they, they're, they're even more than they were on the page and you, you sort of get chills and think, wow, this is, this is a great moment. These women didn't talk about sort of, villainous people at NASA, you know, it was definitely much more mm. any racism that we see now, people being oblivious, people just not standing up, people being too accepting of uh, things that aren't right. And that was what these women described in their interviews, and so that's what we wanted to show. And I know that for Kirsten Dunst, it was very hard for her to do the scene because Octavia Spencer shoot doors, Octavia, and, you know, she would almost get sick to her stomach before some of them. And, of course, Jim Carson was praying against type, and he said he really wanted to, you know, play that 
it was a man being intimidated by a woman being threatened at a job and she's better than him, you know, and it was mm. his ego. And, and, um, and then of course, Kevin Costner is, you know, amazing in the role. And, and I always wondered, you know, what male actor was going to take on that role when he had three, you know, strong women sort of ahead of him and, uh, and Kevin Costner stepped up and he did it beautifully. I'm so reaching for you at the Oscars, but for whatever that's worth, I hope, ah. I hope you sweep the board. It deserves so much more. So good luck. And I'm, I'm so preparing much. myself for not winning, but there's, there's a chance. Fingers crossed. A lot of popular space movies deal with the idea of disasters in space. But this is also a real problem. NASA is studying how a blaze could take hold in space through the spacecraft fire experiment at the moment, known as SAFIRE conducting experiments on board the International Space Station in a special module, as well as here on Earth via an international team. I went to the School of Engineering at the University of Edinburgh to meet Dr Rory Haddon and Ulysses Rojas to find out about the work they're doing with NASA. At the University of Edinburgh, we've got a big lab uh, that we study a lot of fire problems, uh, ranging from uh, how fires impact on buildings all the way through to how fires impact on forests. Uh, and, and the spacecraft fire is um, a very unique scenario mm. to have a fire, uh, but it's uh, also a very uh, a scientifically very interesting, very complex problem. Um, being in space, uh, as it does with many other things, changes the rules of the game. You are one of the few fire excellence centres, if that's if that's a term, in the world, I guess, here in Edinburgh. I'd agree with that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's good. That's good to know. So how does a microgravity environment change the problem of an unexpected fire? Sure. So, I mean, fire is itself a, a problem that is dominated by the presence of gravity, that's evidenced by the fact when you have a flame, it has an elongated, stretched shape. Absolutely, gravity causes the, the shape of the, the flame as we know it. Uh, so the kind of familiar candle shape is all driven by the hot gases being less dense and lighter and therefore rising uh, compared to the cold gases around them. The, and that creates a standard flame shape. But when you remove gravity from that equation, uh, it changes completely um, what the flame looks like, the flame shape. Uh, it even changes the, the modes of, uh, of how the, the energy from that flame is, is transferred to the surroundings. So if you think of a, a normal candle or a campfire or a bonfire, about 70% of the energy is lost by what we call convection, which is how the buoyancy is, is kind of um, how it manifests itself. So when 70% of the energy is now being lost uh, by a different mechanism, which is typically radiation, then uh, we change completely the rules of, of the game and how the fires spread and how the fires will, will ignite. And so what would, what would be the shape of the flame in this microgravity well, that environment? Dep- depends on the material, what's going to be ignited. If it's a flat sample like PMA or thin sample, it depends. Also depends on the flow, because in the International Space Station you have a constant flow of air yes. going through. Otherwise you would die eventually because <laughs> if everything is, if there's no gravity at all, you will uh, finish the, the oxygen around you and you would just die. Mm. So they, therefore they have this uh, flow and that flow also can influence how flames can spread within the station. Sort of flamey red, gold, orange flames that we would see, there would be, it would look rather different if we were aboard the ISS and we suddenly noticed. Sure, yeah, the flame um, itself, you know, we're used to a very luminous flame, that's because uh, as something burns on Earth, uh, the, the flow of gas that's entrained, the flow of air that is entrained into that, um, reacts in a, in, a, in a way with the, the fuel that's produced, and it creates quite a lot of soot. Um, so it's quite an inefficient process mm. when you see that yellow 
um, that yellow flame. That's the suit that is glowing. Mm. Now, when you um, take the flame into microgravity, um, then you change very much uh, how you deliver the oxygen to where the fuel is. So because we don't have the convection anymore, it all happens by diffusion, which is a, uh, a very different process. And that creates a different flame shape. So the candle flame that is that kind of characteristic shape that we know on Earth uh, becomes uh, a kind of a round uh, hemisphere uh, of blue. And it's very mm. much less distinct. Um, it's very difficult, but it's much harder to detect by the naked eye um, just because of the color. Um, and yet it has a very different, a different shape. And that's, uh, it's also radiating a lot more energy as well uh, compared to a flame on Earth. So um, we wouldn't see this sort of leaping sort of flames spreading everywhere, you know, these tongues of fire everywhere that we know from disaster movies. Absolutely not. I mean, the shape of the flame will be governed very much by the the material that is burning Hmm. and, you know, how the flame is spreading and and therefore, as we said a little bit earlier, about the flow of of air in the Hmm. uh, business that's delivered by the the air conditioning uh, on a spaceship. The oxygen level also. Indeed, yeah, the oxygen level. We wouldn't get this kind of what we associate with this sort of terrifying vision of everything on fire, but it would be equally deadly. The flames would be much smaller, but they would be potentially just as destructive and just as dangerous to yeah. human beings. I think um, you know the risks will are still. I mean, the risks are extremely high of a fire in space, but they're different from the ones we perceive on Earth. So, um, for example, um, if there, there is a fire burning, uh, it's harder to detect. Uh, as we discussed a bit before, but also uh, it's consuming the oxygen. And, and you know, typically when you're in space, you're managing these sorts of things you know, relatively. Yeah, because it's the same air that you're breathing. Also, uh, the products of combustion that are produced, you know, things like carbon monoxide are obviously toxic. Um, so trying to understand how you know, the, the rate of production of these things, the rate of consumption of oxygen is all very important. Uh, but so is uh, how you suppress the fire. So it's not um, quite as straightforward as putting some water. Uh, that obviously has a lot of practical challenges, but also the way the, the fire itself, the flame, is, is as we call anchored to the fuel, is very different in, in microgravity uh, compared to on Earth. So you know, the, the mechanisms by which we can extinguish a flame are quite different. So the, the behaviour of water in space is obviously very, very different. Spill some water, you just get these yeah. globules of water. <laughs> sort of, and you're floating around. You, I mean, could you get a, literally, I guess, a rain of fire, little the, the sparks could, of fire flying around all the, over the place? It could happen. Some materials, as PMA, can be uh, polymethylmethacrylate. It's a, a plastic. It's mm. one of these materials that has become the, uh, like the, the, the default material mm. for fire scientists to study. Um, you know, there was all the way back through the, the 70s and the 80s, that was the plastic to study. So obviously plastics were a big deal in fire safety. And because you know a lot about it on Earth, uh, a lot of it gets tested in these microgravity uh, environments. Yes, for, um, for instance, in this material, if it gets on fire, it's an ignition process going, ongoing, some material might drip from mm. the process itself. And these small droplets might also be on fire and spread around. So you have literally droplets of plastic on yeah. fire floating around in the space station, yeah. That's potentially. That's another thing that uh, have been studies about how this, uh, what's the phenomenon behind and how it works, more or less. So that's quite frightening. I mean, I think the a lot of the work that is um, that is going on, and you know, this is where Sapphire fits in and things, is, is to understand um, how to basically stop the fire um, not from igniting, because I think that's a, a challenge that you can never really win, especially mm-hmm. in a space uh, station or a spaceship where you have 
um, large amounts of uh, you know electronic cabling and lots of um, you know computers that are generating heat and all sorts of systems you know heating and ventilation that are you know inherently going to be uh, pose some ignition risk. Uh, the challenge is to not eliminate the, the source of ignition, but to prevent or, or uh, completely stop any sort of flame spread. So you may have a fire, but you you keep it as small as possible. So these are where we start looking at you know flame retardants, changing the use of materials, um, and going through a very kind of onerous screening process before you you know install anything in a in a spaceship. So one of the things, just you know, building on that, one of the things that is actually really um, really interesting about when you move uh, out of the, the world of gravity, because it's such a strong force mm. on the fire and on the flame itself, um, very small changes in the other um, environment, let's say, mm. will have a huge impact on the fire and how it will uh, how it will burn, how it will spread on a material. So um, the projects that we're working on here, we're very interested in looking at, for example, things like how thick is the, the material that's burning. Mm. Um, a lot of the work that was done previously from the, you know, all the way back from the 60s and the 70s and through the 80s, um, typically we were limited in the size of the experiment mm. that we can use. So, you know, something on the space station, uh, the ISS, you might be able to burn is maybe two to eight centimetres, something like that size. It's not really um, disaster so movie stuff, really. Exactly, it's no. not really disaster movie stuff. And the, the fact that your sample is so small means that the effect of the edges... Um, and is very big. So uh, trying to understand the, the real behaviour becomes very difficult from doing that. So, you know, the, uh, the scenario in space, therefore, um, we're looking at a very different um, problem from how it would burn on Earth. And that creates a fundamental challenge of, of when you're building a spaceship, uh, how do you select the materials? Uh, if you test them on Earth, which is obviously the most practical way mm. to do it, how do you relate those results to how it will perform when it's in space with, with no gravity and, and a forced flow around it and so on. And that's very much what we're working on. Um, that's that's where Sapphire comes that's in. Pro- yeah, exactly. And Sapphire allows you, my understanding is, is it, you're working on a much larger scale than usual. So you're talking about models that are tiny, a few centimetres in size, but yeah. Sapphire is on a, a completely different scale to previous experiments and previous studies of fire and space. Absolutely, and it's important to note as well, that not, the scale is not only in, in size, uh, but also in time. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, so the Sapphire project basically it's this project run by NASA and, um, together uh, with uh, ESA, European Space mm. Agency, and they've been uh, there are six experiments so far. They have been tested uh, out in space actually. Mm. In actually space, in space, uh, yeah. So you, you've got your data is coming from space. Yeah. So they basically Sapphire one for instance they tested a big uh, sample, a fabric sample. Sapphire two there different uh, different types of samples. Uh, Bit, a bit smaller than mm. the previous case and so on it's going to be the third and the fourth but we cannot just say that we're going to 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 get all the knowledge by doing one experiment or two therefore we have several people around the world working on different uh, topics mm. along together with this uh, Sapphire project for instance us we are doing this uh, we can do some ground based uh, experiments and also doing some people in France and so on in Japan so they're working on different materials yeah. in France and Japan. So, so you get it, yeah. So it's not just the sapphire itself, because the knowledge we might get because of that, it can be limited. Therefore, we do more things to improve or to support the whole thing. So. So you're getting a really comprehensive picture. So yes. this and this knowledge is being shared throughout all the different space agencies. So it's it's very much a kind of it's it's kind of a global project. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's one of the joys of, of space research seems to be reasonably unique in this world that um, 
it, it does create this international uh, collaboration on science, which is, you know, I think something that every scientist wants more of, uh, and to some extent or another at least. Um, and it's really kind of a, a privilege to be a, a very small part in what is a very large and complex uh, set of organisations working on a very, uh, you know, different projects all feed into the same kind of common goal. But every space agency has to deal with it, you know, um, to go back to what we said before, the um, the absence of gravity and the absence of buoyancy means very simple problems. Mm. You know, where do you put the smoke detector? Mm. Uh, on Earth, you put it on the roof because the smoke rises. Um, but if you don't have smoke that rises, uh, how do you detect these fires? So what we even perceive as a very simple problem, you know, uh, on Earth becomes a, a huge uh, scientific, logistical and design challenge uh, on a spaceship. So, because we did, we have experienced that. We haven't had that on the International Space Station, but we have had a fire on the Mir space station back uh, going back 20 sort of years yeah, what I know it's they had a, uh, an oxygen canister and there was a rubber on the this canister that uh, got broken and got in contact with oxygen and suddenly that uh, triggered so it was the a fire. rubber seal or so that's different uh, so there was a, suddenly an environment with full of, uh, lot of oxygen and there was uh, flames around so that was kind of dangerous thing mm-hmm. Yeah, extremely um, dangerous. Absolutely, yeah, and these are these are quite again. This is a different risk that is um, from uh, what we're studying mm. a lot here, which is you know flame spread on a material. That, uh, that fire was much more of a what we would call a jet fire uh, in a way, uh, where you've got you know a, a source of, of oxygen that's right there, which is necessary for the, the space station to function. Um, but yeah, it's it's a slightly different scenario, but still very scary. And I think you know lessons were learned in terms of how you design space stations and how you you know get the two people to and from evacuation modules and so on. Of course, in the, in the long run, if we are building bigger and better space stations, but also spaceships potentially to travel beyond our solar system, then obviously um, for a long journey, having incidents where things caught fire, where you had ignition. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you know, uh, there is some kind of uh, horizon scanning and kind of future work down the line that, that's being used, looking at um, how fire spread when you change the oxygen concentration from what we have here on Earth. Uh, one of the, the systems in space that, uh, to kind of minimise the weight of the, the structure of the, the spaceship or the space station is to reduce the pressure uh, inside. Uh, and then to compensate for the reduced pressure, you increase the oxygen concentration and the human body basically sees no difference. Um, the question is, does Isn't a fire... is that like Dreamliners, actually? Um, the the Dreamliners, yeah. uh, it's a similar concept. I think there they just increase the pressure because yes. the structure is stronger. Uh, so in a normal aircraft, the pressure is much much used. Um but yeah, same idea, you know, to make it to, or to optimise the strength of the structure, uh, reduce the pressure um, so you don't have to have as much weight uh, to, keep it, to keep it strong. Uh, but yeah, increase the oxygen concentration so that people can breathe and act normally. Uh, but the effect that has on a fire is, is again, very, uh, well, it's very little known. And we're starting on that path. Uh, some work is underway internationally on that to try and evaluate, um, you know, what new risks would that present and how can you uh, mitigate against it by choosing different materials or, or so on. For me, the, the thing that I'm always uh, amazed by when it comes to, to fires is how if you make one relatively small change, I mean, okay, maybe going into space is not small, but you know, the act of removing, removing gravity from the scenario, uh, if you make one small change like that, how big of an impact that will have on uh, the fire behaviour, and then therefore you know, how little that shows we know uh, when we're unable to predict the impact that's going to have. Uh, it means that we've got a lot of work to do on how fires burn here on Earth, which is what we spend the rest of our life uh, doing. A great quote by um, one of the kind of eminent fire scientists, uh, Howard Emmons, I think, said it. 
uh, which is you know after life, fire is the most complex process um, to study. And I think you know that when you have such a complex phenomena that's going on, and the reason it's complex is because we've got lots of different bits of physics that have to be coupled together, and then we throw in some chemistry, and then you know it just all kind of adds to biology the as well in terms of how how it impacts on people how, yeah, and yeah. all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Um, so you know, there's this the, the massive complexity, and I think the um, the thing that I'm always slightly amazed by is, you know, the NASA test that Ulysses described is very simple. It's a very, very, you know, you take a piece of material, you try and set fire to it, and it passes or it fails. But many of the things that, you know, are around us in the built environment are subject to similarly crude tests. You know, uh, is it safe or is it not safe? And, you know, our, our level of knowledge and uh, ability to predict the fire behavior of, of items of furnishings or construction materials is really low. So I'm always amazed that you know, even in the super complex, high-tech world of space exploration, we're still using very crude tools to assess the flame spread. Adventures in Space and Tim is made in association with the UK Space Agency and the International Centre for Life in Newcastle. The theme music is Modular Space by Martin Molin from the band Wintergarten. This podcast was presented, produced and edited by Helen Keane, with special thanks to Sue Charman Anderson, founder of Ada Lovelace Day. Thank you for listening. Oh! A Wolf Tea Production.